0: Oh my God, Oh, it's a blood bath in here. There's gotta be a better way to get my dagger clean and shiny, safer than this. This is what I used to deal with when I had to cut myself shaving before I knew about Manscaped. Thank you, Manscaped, for keeping my dagger slick and ready for wherever the night takes me. Manscaped is trusted by over two million men worldwide. Join the movement by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code Managing Madrid. Hey Matt Wilsey, I have a question for you. Who do you think kept their dagger nice and slick tonight?
1: You know who kept their dagger nice and slick tonight? It was Kareem Mustafa Benzema. He earned the Man of the Match award from UEFA, but you know what? He earned the coveted, the more coveted Manscape Man of the Match award from us here at Managing Madrid, and he deserves it. What a what what a performance, what a goal puts France on his back. The man cannot be stopped right now.
0: Listeners get 20% off and free shipping with the code managing at manscaped.com. If you want to be as efficient as Karim Benzema, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code managing Madrid. Slay your worst pubes and keep your dagger clean with manscaped. This episode is also brought to you by Royal Sonesta Washington DC DuPont Circle Hotel that's where you should be booking your stay when you come see us for the Washington DC podcast on March 12th weekend we are coming to DC it's going to be awesome myself Gabe Lesra and Omar will be there and it's going to be a ton of fun so tickets to that podcast are in the show notes as well as these cities uh, Toronto in October, Dallas in November, New York City in December, Miami in January, London in February, Washington DC in March, Chicago in April, and Mumbai in May. If you're anywhere close to those cities, book your tickets, the links to all those cities will be in the show notes, make sure you attend. We're we'll, we'll probably never be coming back to those cities again. So do your, do, your, do your due diligence, get in there, make sure you just show up, it's gonna be a ton of fun and a huge party. Um, by the way, the DuPont Circle in D.C., Royal Sonesta, their 335 tastefully appointed guest rooms and specialty suites provide a calming retreat, while 10,000 square feet of flexible meeting space and thoughtfully designed social spaces keep the business of the Beltway moving forward. Keep up with your wellness routine on the go at their on-site fitness center and escape to their seasonal outdoor pool and oasis in the warmer months. That's Sonesta.com. And book it at Royal Sonessa Washington, D.C. DuPont Circle. And you'll be a stone's throw away from the podcast we're recording. Uh, tonight's podcast is a two-parter. Part one. Myself, Keon Subani, I'm joined by the great Matt Wilty to break down Benzema's performance and Mbappe's performance in all things UEFA Nations League final in France's 2-1 win over Spain. And then part two: Grant Little and Om Arvin. They break down Las Blancas' first league win, a win over ABAR that happened this morning at the Crack of Dawn, so, well, Crack of Dawn where I live anyway, so uh, Omen Grant broke that down, and stick around for that, and without further ado, here is Managing Madrid Podcasts, part one, let's go.
2: Nice article in the Managing Madrid
3: uh, blog, wonderful lads that do a great job there, and worth reading about that man there,
2: Karim Benzema.
0: Welcome to a Sunday evening edition of the Managing Madrid Podcast. We are recording this just after the France-Spain UEFA Nations League final, and I never thought I'd be doing like a post-game show for the UEFA Nations League final for the Managing Madrid Podcast. Turns out the UEFA Nations League has been a pretty good success. I prefer it much more over the old system, which was friendlies. I like that we have something actually on on you know at stake here. Um and that's kind of re-evaluated my view of the international break. I actually don't dread it as much. I mean, I like to have the break, but at the same time, it's cool to be covering games like this. There's drama, there's uh, excitement, and we get to see some superstars in action and, and two teams that were very tactically tight in a, in a more conservative final. So we're gonna break down tonight, uh, mostly Benzema and Mbappe probably, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, Stick around for part two. That's going to be Las Blancas. So joining me, Keon Sabani, for this segment is Matt Wiltzi. Matt Wiltsy, how are you, my friend?
1: Hey, Keon. Doing well, yeah. It was a fun UEFA Nations League final. It definitely was, and it was two great teams. And um, the second half, especially, once the game opened up a little bit, just turned to be a back-and-forth event, and it was great. And we had some spectacular events from... Real Madrid man, Karim Benzema and potentially future Real Madrid man, Kylian Mbappe. Um,
0: Yeah, so I think it, those will be the, <laughs> they, they will be the focal point of discussion, but I think we will talk about everything, including Spain and maybe some of the stuff leading up to this final. You know, we covered everything on the international break on managing majority, including the performances of Alaba for Austria, for Croatia, Fede, Uruguay, and going on the list, we covered them all, Hazard uh, and Courtois. So... Uh, Maybe we'll save that stuff for the end though because that's not the most exciting thing to talk about. So um, Spain, France today. Matt, I thought this France team, it's kind of weird. I'm I'm kind of, the way I feel about this France team is that I feel like they have so much talent and they do. That's not just a feeling, that's just a fact. But they, they have so much talent but somehow can be so boring and so exciting at the same time. They can be extra conservative, extra defensive. They will just soak up passing lanes. They'll try to hit teams on the counter. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. I think teams kind of know what to expect with them now. And, you know, they have that first half against Belgium where they go into that shell, look like they're getting completely overwhelmed. In the second half, they're down by two goals. They come out and be like, okay, let's play higher up the pitch and Belgium retreat. And they're like, okay, yeah. So now we see this exciting version of France. You saw France versus France. Finland, I think it was during the last international break, was incredible to see Benzema and Griezmann together. And then the game before that, can't remember who they were playing, but that was uh, an off performance and it just didn't click at all. And then you look at this game, I just felt like defensively they were so good. And, and I think like a lot of the narrative or the commentary, the analysis on Twitter surrounding this game was all about Spain are dominating the game and they're just not scoring. And I'm surprised that we didn't see the opposite perspective, which was France are defending really well and actually feel really comfortable defending. And I and I thought like they were gonna just try to pick and choose their spots on the counterattack. And it just turns out it kind of just canceled each other out, Matt. So I, I I'm curious to know how you felt that first half unfolded.
1: Well, pound for pound, I think this France team is far better than Spain, just at a, on an individual level. Like if you take an individual versus an individual in every position, like France usually wins out. But to to Luis Enrique's credit, although we don't always agree with his personnel decision, I do think his actual um, his ability to kind of build a team and get that team playing uh, to his playing style and using his tactics, especially at an international level where that's very difficult to do in a short amount of time, I think he deserves tremendous credit in the way that he's built this spain team and built it in his mold and i think he's uh i mean it, it you saw that in the first half like this spain team not nearly as talented but they were the better side after it was a good opening five ten minutes from from france where benzema was actually played through by a great pogba through ball and uh looked like he was offside there but wasn't beat beats uh unai Simón on the dribble but isn't able to cut back to Mbappe. Aside from that, like France didn't have anything. And I thought what it was interesting to kind of watch the tactical battle because um, I said on Twitter that like, I look, I like this new France formation. I think it gets, it puts Mbappe, Benzema, and Griezmann in their best positions. And you can fit in like France just has a plethora of center backs. You can fit those guys in like Koulete. And uh, then enter a new a new player, Inteo Hernandez, who I did not think had a good game. Um, and but you, you get to kind of field this talent in all their best positions and make use of, of best use of your squad. So I liked the formation, but I think Deschamps got it wrong just tactically on a defensive side at least, because France were actually trying to press for a, lot, a large parts of that first half, and they weren't able to press effectively because Pavard and teo hernandez were asked to start basically as flat fullbacks and a flat back five but then go out and be quick enough to get out to um to the to so they start defending the wingers, then they have to be go out and be quick enough to get to the to the fullback so teo wasn't essentially starting marking uh ferran torres and then has to press and push out to get to aspira cueta and so it was that's an impossible task, especially with how quickly Spain moved the ball. And so there's tons of space in behind the fullbacks. And I thought Farrant Torres had a great first half and really kind of, I mean, showed that Teo Hernandez, as much as he's improved at AC Milan, still um, still, I, I don't think he's the defensive player you're, you're looking for in that position, or at least in this type of game. And I thought Spain did a great job of exploiting those spaces.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think that there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I, I will say this about France. I think, you know, despite like the stalemate at halftime, you know, neither team really creating chances. Um, I think France were okay with that. I think France were okay with taking the Spanish, Spanish attack out of the game. I think they read the scouting report from the Italy game pretty well, if you ask me. Like all those off ball runs that Sarabia made in that game against Italy, which threw their defence into a frenzy, um, France read that like a book. Three at the back. You can there's like definitely sequences in this game you can see what three at the back have done properly, what it brings. Um like, you know, Koundé uh Varan and uh who was the third guy? Yeah, Kim Pembe. Yeah. Yep. So you were on mute, I think. Um so uh those three, like you could just see it was they, they the amount of ground they covered because you initially had the thing that also france did really well over italy was they press they pressed well um they but spain also were able to play out of it but not enough i think to pass the front three once you pass the front three of france those three are not going to track as much um but if you pass them you're in open water but they, spain didn't get in those situations that often and even when they did i think the three at the back had good coverage anyway so i, I think it all worked out for them so um we should Maybe talk about Benzema's Benzema's performance. I think, obviously, you know he did all of his magic in the second half. I I saw just Benzema was kind of a ghost in the first half. Obviously, France did not have that much of a ball. They did not have many attacks. I think they had one shot total in the first half. Um, Benzema had a couple plays defensively, which I was just really impressed with. And I and I know like not everyone cares about that stuff, but I do, and I know you do too. Um, I thought his tracking was pretty good in this game on the wing. Um, he also had to drop deep to help escape pressure because Spain were pressing high on that on that left wing in particular. So I, I thought his defensive performance was quite good. I Obviously, we don't have much to say about him with the ball or offensively because Francis did not have much of the ball. But I thought defensively, he had a really good
1: first half. I wrote about that, too, um, after the Belgium game because his defensive work rate in that game as well was just – it was tremendous. And I think um, – In this game as well, I really noticed it in the second half. Like he was hounding Busquets, going all the way back to even his own 18 at times, to help kind of help defend and help be a part of that defensive block for France. So he definitely, I mean, that's something that's important to Deschamps, and I think he's if there if there's only one player in that field that doesn't defend, it's Mbappe, and so Benzema is one of those guys that has to has to put in the work regardless of uh, what his position is on the field and how talented he is. And you mentioned that like, he didn't really do much in the first half, didn't see much of the ball. Um, in fairness to Benzema, I think he really didn't have help because every time Mbappe got the ball or even Griezmann, I felt like they gave it away. Like it was probably one of Mbappe's poorest first halves I've ever seen. Like he got, I think he touched the ball only 10 times and gave it away seven times. So, uh, his touch looked a little heavy. He wasn't, there was one time he tried to turn Eric Garcia and just like, didn't get it right. And, uh, Laporte looked like he had the better of Mbappe. So, um, it took him a while. Like it didn't take him until I feel like the 70th minute for Mbappe to really get in- into this game. And you could kind of say the same for Benzema until, until <laughs> Spain scored. That's when they, those two started to really kick it up another gear.
0: Yeah. Um, And and I think like what what the other things you saw Benzema do well is just like he's going to obviously drop deep. And I I think in like past games when you saw Benzema, Mbappe and Griezmann together, part of the reason it didn't work is because they're all kind of similar. And while that can be a good thing because it provides you fluidity and interchangeability, um, it also I felt like Benzema like couldn't do that thing with Real Madrid where he drops deep. And just kind of does the link up thing because in France, Griezmann and Mbappe kind of want to do that, too. Um, So, you know, one of the games before in the previous international break, he was just kind of basically playing as a number nine. He was expected to sit at the top of the box or in and around the box, get the ball there, hold it up and and quick play, quick one touch passes. He can do that real fine. But I think he's really in his flow when he's able to drop deep and do do certain things. I thought he did that more in this game. I just want to say quickly because you mentioned Spain's lineup and Luis Enrique and criticism and stuff. I I think like when I saw that Eric Garcia came in and Rodri came in for Coke and Pau Torres, my feeling was basically like, look, I Pau Torres and Coque were two of Spain's best players against Italy. Pau Torres was really good defensively, and Coke was I thought really important in their two way presence overall. And he took him out of the team, but I was like, look. I can't, there's nothing I can criticize with him anymore at this point. Like he deserved every benefit of the doubt. And to be fair, Eric Garcia, who I'm not a big fan of, I thought I had a pretty good game today. Um, And, you know, maybe some bad luck on the Mbappe goal, which we'll get to, Um, but I thought him, and and I mean, look, I wouldn't wouldn't say that he was like phenomenal or anything. And and I would reserve that phenomenal uh, label for Laporte, who I thought was great and really kept Mbappe in check especially on that wing when Mbappe was trying to get down there. But uh, so shout out to that. Rodri, was less high on it. He had two shocking giveaways early on. One of them led to uh, Benzema nearly rounding the keeper. I'm not sure if it would have counted anyway because I was offside, but still. Um, so there's that. Uh, let's talk. Was there anything else from the first half that you wanted to, to discuss? Well, I just wanted
1: to add I thought Rodri was terrible. Um, I thought he was really bad. And uh, I don't know why, like they didn't even use him. And I thought everybody thought it was going to be maybe like a double pivot, but no, he just was a like for like replacement in that 433 as an interior where he's, we all know that's not his strongest position. And so I thought he struggled. There was one time where Pogba just like shrugged him off the ball, which was pretty incredible. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I feel like with Luis Garcia, or sorry, Luis Enrique, that we, we all just, we all don't, the personal selection is so bizarre, but he even said it himself. Like <laughs> when he was talking to all the journalists, he's like, yeah, I know more about football than any of you. So don't even question my decision. He said something like that. And it's like, fair enough. Like you've proven the point so far, but um, it's, it's, it's some of the decisions are always a little baffling to me, but you're, you're right. Yeah. like, he's, he's earned the credit at this point.
0: Um, so France come out in the second half. Um I don't know if the, I don't know if the second half necessarily changed that much. Uh I will say I think the tipping point really was towards the like just before Spain scored their goal. There was a whole sequence of events that were chaotic and fun. So you had one moment where Mbappe gets a break in the 54th minute. Alonso comes in with a flying tackle and just blocks the shot or intercepts the ball. I can't remember which one, but it was a huge defensive intervention. Alonso, by the way, I thought was really good against Italy. He's one of the people that really pleasantly surprised me. I know he was good offensively, but I thought he was just good overall against Italy. And I and I talked a little bit, a bit about that on the Churros episode on Friday. But um, So Alonso comes in with a huge block. And then you had kind of just building up, all building up to this goal. You had... Um, you had the sequence where you had Chua It was him. He does this thing where he just turns two defenders and he spins with the ball and then he plays this vertical pass. Pogba rides a challenge, stays on his feet as he's like getting dragged to the floor. He plays it out wide. Um, that leads to Teo Hernandez in the crossbar. That would have been an amazing goal. Like, I think if that went in, we would have been talking about that as, as just one of the great team build-up goals of this international break. And and then like seconds later, Spain come the other way. Busquets plays his dink pass to uh, to Oyartabal. and I don't know. I thought like France's center backs had a great game overall. I thought out of the three, in particular, Koundé was awesome. Strong challenges everywhere. He was throwing around Ferran quite quite easily. He was getting the better of Gabi because he's just much stronger than Gabi. Just and he was much quicker than Oyarzabal on the wing. Koundé was a standout to me, but then you have Upamecano comes in, and obviously he comes in for the injured Varane, right? Um, and I don't know what he was doing. He just looked confused. He looked like he you know, he he kind of misread the play, and then he couldn't recover, and the ball just kind of bounces off him. Doesn't deal with it well. And Oyarzabal scores. And I thought, I was like, yes, this is going to open things up a bit big time. And then seconds later, Benzema just cancels it out with a moment of magic. So I kind of this is this is a really cop out thing to say i honestly felt like that when benzema let that fly i thought it was going in i was like it that's going in you can see the trajectory you can look at the way he hit it i thought he he just got it perfect you can't hit anything more perfect than that the way he cut in just an incredible moment of just like dropping your balls on the field high stake moment it's a final i thought it was phenomenal i jumped out of my seat happy for happy for big benz man of the match award um, clearly I was just so happy for him in that moment and really like you can see like to be quite honest like France just has, has really used his superstar aura since recalling him to the French national team and I think it's taken some time it's taken some time for it to click and it still hasn't fully clicked with him Griezmann and, and Mbappe together fully I don't think I don't think we've seen the best of it yet uh, I don't know if Deschamps will be the man who will finally figure that out but I, I think him in a vacuum, he's looking more and more comfortable. And he's really taking the leadership role, too. And it's amazing. You think about, like, he hasn't been in the National team for, what, five, six years? Was it more than that? I can't remember. He comes in and he's immediately the leader. He's, he's the captain of the ship. He's, you know, he's giving away penalties to Mbappe. He's giving confidence to the team. He's giving some something some oomph to the attack. I was thoroughly impressed. Uh, I'm continually impressed by this man. He's been amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that Spain goal but McConnell, i don't know what was going on there i was shocking defending like and i've i haven't seen enough of him to um know whether or not this is like a consistent theme in his game but i have seen things like through social media and online that like he does have a blunder like this in him um and so it it obviously gets magnified being on at this scale on the international level in a final but Definitely, uh, definitely sees his stock drop a little bit there. Um, and I was actually surprised that Kempembe started over Lucas Hernandez because with Kounde and Lucas Hernandez, you have the option with both to do that elbow back roll that that Oum often talks about because uh, they're both comfortable playing either as right back or left back. And so um, in a three back three center back system, they can either of them are can be options as the elbow back there. So I was surprised he, he uh he got dropped for this match. But um going back to to Benzema and the goal like like you said, I mean it was I felt like it was the prototypical FIFA goal that everyone tries to score. Like cut in, down R1, curve it and then curl it into the, yeah. the upper 90 of the opposite opposite corner. Literally just perfect, perfect goal. Um and just Benzema deserves it. Like I do you think is it fair to is this like outlandish or is it fair to say that he's this start of the season he's performed close to peak Messi Ronaldo levels is that fair to say
0: Benzema right now close to peak right now this start
1: of the season yeah.
0: The numbers speak for themselves
1: yeah.
0: I. At this current juncture of the season ended now, yes. The reason I hesitant to say that is not because what you're saying necessarily wrong, but because my my brain is already programmed to know that what we're no seeing from can, ben, yeah. Well, what we're seeing from Benzema right now, Ronaldo and Messi have been doing for over a decade, which yeah, is just yeah. crazy. And that's why they're the, they're the two goats. And like, yeah, so that and but look, to be fair, you know, Lewandowski has had a crazy stretch too, and I don't like if we're talking about Benzema doing this. I think we have to talk about him. So, but I'm just
1: saying this moment in yeah. time, like this small subset of the yeah. season. Yeah, he's versus... been
0: he's been unstoppable. Yeah, He's yeah. There's no two way. There's no. There's yeah. no way around it. He's been unstoppable. He's yeah. exactly what we need. Exactly what anyone needs right now in their team. Like he's just he scores. He he's he's far from a stationary striker. He defends that. That's not something you see. Like. A lot of these unicorns we see offensively, they're devoid of defensive duties. They don't press, they conserve their energy. Benzema is just start to finish. He's just one to, like, full throttle, minute one to 90, defensively working hard, like, pressing, tracking, everything. Like, it's
1: just crazy. Over the last 12, here's another question for you. Over the last 12 months or even 18 months, would you say Benzema is a better player than Mbappe?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think I would too, yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't think that's that controversial. I mean, it might be on football Twitter with the guys with the Mbappe avatars. But (laughs) (laughs) uh, I think think from just everything standpoint, when you factor in everything, the holistic approach to the game, the defensive ability, the pressing, the link-up play, the leadership... Plus the goals, the assists, the playmaking, all that stuff, the consistency. Yeah, I I think I think that's true, and that's why he will be a a higher candidate than Mbappe in the Ballon d'Or ranking. He will be. I hope he will be. I I I don't I don't know.
1: Um, So yeah, well, that'll be actually be interesting to see how that plays out because, like, I just feel I don't know. I maybe it's just us Real Madrid fans, but like, I don't know if the rest of the footballing world is like campaigning for him or anything like even to get on the podium, like, I don't even know, like, I just don't know what uh, the reaction is outside of Real Madrid circles.
0: That's the thing. And, I, and I, I'm not going to name any country because I that I feel like that would be irresponsible of me. But when you look at the way Ballon is voted and every single country in the world gets rep- a representative to vote and you just go down the list, alphabetical order of these countries and who they're voting for, it's like, dude, you can't just vote for the player from your country like you know what i mean like so that's not always the case but i do feel like there's not a complete um there's not a complete science like there, there's it's very possible this goes wrong and that's if ballon has gone wrong it's not necessarily an objective vote um but it is what it is i think i think the general consensus hopefully we'll see you know what benzema has done I, i'm not going to necessarily say he is the clear cut he should win it but I think top three is a fair place, and and number one would be a fair place as well. But you know, I would understand if Lewandowski wanted to be honest. He's been he's been phenomenal. Um, this leads us to the Mbappe goal. So, I after Mbappe scored that goal, I basically couldn't watch the game because it just out of confusion as to why that goal counted, I was very confused. I spent the entire second half after that goal after that point reading rules of the game the FIFA rules and I kind of went back and forth on it. I actually never thought it was a good call But I think I've landed somewhere as an open-minded human that by the book that is possibly the right call But I don't like it. I don't like the rule That's where I've landed on so a lot of people are posting this image on Twitter showing that he was offside And they're showing the lines like yeah, we know that part. That's not what's debate what the referee explained was that basically the The pass from Teo was not where this play started. It basically got technically reset when the ball hits Eric Garcia's foot. When Eric Garcia is trying to slide and make an interception, he actually, obviously, out of no intention, he's the one who plays it to Mbappe, and that's why it wasn't offside. I don't like the rule. I think the primal point of the play should be where Teo passes it, and that's that uh so i guess call me a call me an old head called me someone who i the, by the book it's a goal fine i don't like it just change it so that 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 needs to be accounted for like i don't
1: yeah and like i i like most people i, I well i first off i didn't see it hit or touch eric garcia so and then when they didn't call back the goal it's like okay let's it looks clearly outside but let's wait and see the pictures and then they never showed the pictures so it took me a while to figure out what the actual decision was and that it it, they said in fact it did hit eric garcia or he touched it at least so yeah i mean i'm kind of in the same boat as you kian like no i'm not gonna um argue your opinion because i agree with it like i think it's it's that's a really tough rule and like i think there just has to be some kind of like nuance to it or like at least interpretation from the referee like what it has to be more intentional or if it's just like a slight deflection like that that's difficult to call uh in favor of in favor of france
0: yeah i, I yeah I, I don't i think there is definitely times when it's like obvious like if alonzo was i mean eric garcia was He has the ball at his feet he's in possession and then he all of a sudden makes a back pass to the keeper and it's intercepted by Mbappe and that's obviously not going to be offside right this situation i don't this one i think was there this is the problem like if you i i I also don't like the idea of putting rules out for the interpretation either because that's part of the reason why the handball rule is never called consistently because it's open interpretation but uh in this scenario look I get it. I, I. It's a tough one, like it. it let's say like, because like, I don't know if you, if there's a way you could put it out of interpretation, actually, now that I think about it. Because yeah.
1: And I'm I'm just like I'm one of those people that like life isn't black and white, like we live in the gray. And so as much as we want to take the interpretation out of it and everything like that, I just feel like it's impossible. So you, you might as well like that's why we have referees is yeah. because like that's why they're there to have that interpretation so like i just feel like yeah it's it's maybe makes their maybe makes their job even more scrutinized but i just i just think that's the way it should be
0: i didn't i didn't see but did the line do you know if the linesman had his flag up for that one i don't know yeah because i feel like he kept it down the whole time um so I was even I don't I don't even know if like it would have mattered if VAR existed or not like if they would have called it offside and then VAR wouldn't have been able to overturn it, I'm not sure but um either way I I suppose uh I, I suppose by the book I'm I'm it is what it is. Um Mbappe had low key like I even just going back to the Belgium game when France were just completely pinned their only source of offense was Um, Mbappe just dribbling past players to break lines and opening space for others. And today, you know, Benzema's probably going to get the accolades and rightfully so. And Mbappe will get recognition. I mean, he had the freaking winning goal. He had six shots um, and just one of those players who can just generate offense from you out of nothing. And Tim and Benzema were were their, their two best offensive players. I will say I thought Pogba's been low-key good for a long time now. I don't know if he's getting the recognition he gets. some of the passes he can hit, especially when under pressure, or even if you don't put pressure on him, he's gonna just burn you with a great ball over the top. Um, one thing that I did find interesting was that uh, France's entire buildup for large stretches of this game was just Loris just hitting long balls. and I And I knew that was the case, but then when I looked at the numbers, Lloris had. Did, don't. I hope you haven't looked at this because that would ruin the game. But how many long balls do you think Hugo Loris had today? Forty. Oh Jesus! Come on, man. No, twenty six. <laughs> twenty six. Oh, yeah. Twenty six is a crazy number, though. It's a lot. I thought it was balls. gonna be
1: really, really crazy, so that's why I went. Fair enough. I went high. Uh, but when uh, no, I see like... nine
0: by comparison.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. The, the well, contrast. that's in Spain. We're forcing that too. Yeah. I mean, that's what Spain wanted and it, it worked because your East constantly hit the ball out of bounds.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, Spain's press was really good. I I think, I think both teams actually played pretty, pretty well. I think, you know, this game could have really gone either way. Uh, I think France were good defensively and Spain were pressing well. And it just kind of broke France's way. And then that's how it went down. I don't I don't necessarily agree with the idea that for Spain were dominant. I think they had a lot of the ball. I think they had struggle. They tr- they struggled to get the ball between the lines in the final third. That's where their struggle was. And France deserve credit for that. Um,
1: well, I think Luis Enrique is, has made this Spain, this group of players, a team like it feels like a team regardless of who's in there. They obviously missing a lot of key personnel. And I think a guy like Ansu Fati, if he can eventually become fit, would be yeah. a game changer for them. But, like, they're missing a lot of key pieces, yet they still feel like a cohesive team. So that's a huge credit to Luis Enrique. Um, and, I mean, this the France squad, I feel like Deschamps is trying to get there, and he had that. And, and now maybe after the Euro, he lost a bit of it, and now he's trying to reformulate that team. But when you have guys like Mbappe who just, even we talked about it, like his first half was terrible and he didn't really come alive in the second half until after Ben's goal. But when you have a guy like him, like his change of speed is so lethal and just the threat he can constantly provide just with his raw abilities, it automatically makes you just a dangerous team. And I was trying to think to myself, like the difference, because obviously Vinicius is super fast, super quick and um and Benzema is the, or uh, Mbappe is the same but like there's different there's a difference to their speed and I'm trying to th- I was while well, during this podcast I've been trying to think like what is it is it quickness or speed like which one has which and I think the difference really for Mbappe is just his long strides. Yeah. His super long legs, long strides that like allow him to like gobble things up and um maybe look like this the sprint speed looks even faster just because his legs are so much longer um but yeah i mean it's that that threat he possesses just from his pure speed alone is his mouth watering
0: it's that change of pace and i, I think this comparison has been done a lot so it's not a fresh take but ronaldo nazario it was a very similar change of pace where he could do the, the step over one way and then just drop the other way and just drop the defender with it and they kind of have a similar playing style when it comes to that. Benzema has that too, especially when he was younger, he, he played like that. But um, I th- I think it, it's just devastating to watch him play. The th- and you look at this France team, and again, a team that, especially in recent history, like let's say the last 24 months or so, 12 to 24 months, they haven't been this offensive juggernaut where they're creating chance after chance after chance. They're They're scoring goals that are really difficult. And that comes down to just being a superstar and transcending some of these tactical things. You look at Benzema, Benzema's goal against Italy. Forget the one today, which was brilliant. The one against Italy where he was surrounded by three defenders and he even talked about that after the game where he was like, you just have to like um, have hope in that situation and you just gotta keep going until the last second. It was incredible that he found the space to shoot that in the bottom right-hand corner and it was an Mbappe step over that created the goal as well. And uh, I just think, it's, a, I mean, it's kind of like a, a nice tease for us because we're talking about yeah. superstars and bad tactics. It seems <laughs> to be a, a, something that goes hand in hand with Real Madrid, so. Um,
1: well, those two, especially though, this whole, like every game for France, really, even since the Euros, but like, they just have a connection, like it's so clear. The chemistry is there, they have a connection, they seek each other out. Um like, even in moments where you're like, there's no way Benzema can find Mbappe here. He still finds him. Like, I think about that pass. Uh, Benzema was on the left side of the box. It was near towards the end of the game. And it looked like he was going to pass it to Griezmann, But he actually drives the ball all the way across goal to uh, Mbappe on the right, who gets a shot off. It was actually a p- pretty good opportunity. But, like, somehow those two always find each other. And it, it is a tease because, like, you see that connection and it, it's there. It's It's definitely there.
0: Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, I mean, there is from a match perspective, but I don't know if we want to necessarily get into it because it's, you know, I think they from the realm, just side of things we talked about it. I, I did want to say this. There was a lot of noise in Spain and kind of passive aggressiveness, both sides that a lot of Spanish people were, were supporting France because <laughs> of the, because of Luis Enrique and stuff like that. Um, and I what do whatever you want. I don't care. I don't you know. I don't, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not like. If I'm Spanish, I'm not necessarily mad at that. And if I'm a Real Madrid fan, I'm not necessarily mad at Spain either. I don't care either way. I do think that Luis Enrique deserves credit. Um, what what a real like regardless of how we feel about him also like how much of a difference is one Real Madrid player like if one Real Madrid player was in the squad would you start supporting the team and what difference would that make if Lucas Vasquez is sitting on the bench would you be happy if Asensio is sitting on the bench would you be happy um if Nacho is sitting on the bench would you be happy I think Nacho is a better defender than Eric Garcia but he's got a terrible season and I don't think he would start over those two in Luis Enrique's mind anyway so I don't know um, I think the one question I would have, I'd be curious because there's one at at his if he's healthy, and he's playing at his the level of health that he needs to get to. Carvajal is their best right back, so I I wonder what happens if he's healthy. If if, if what what will what Lucio do then? That would be really interesting, but. um I like that we're seeing like a lot more of Aspilicueta and Marcos Alonso and these Premier League guys in the Spanish national team because I think they bring something. And I think that some those are two players that really haven't been used that much historically.
1: Um, I, I I personally think Aspilicueta, even if Carvalho's fit, is probably the number one choice for Luis Enrique right now. And maybe that wasn't the case at the start of his uh, what Spanish national edge, team career. Think? I think just his reliability and like he's proven, I mean, he's he's one of those guys that like consistently gives you seven, eight out of 10 performances. And he's just, he does all the little things right. Like he's probably one of the best 1v1 defenders in in the world. Like I, I don't think that's outlandish to say. Like Aspilicueva is a very, very good 1v1 defender. Like he's he's a leader out there. He reads the game really well. He's obviously maybe not going to give you um, what Carval can from an offensive standpoint, but I still think he's reliable and he he makes the right. I mean, he's composed in possession and comfortable. So I really like Aspilicueta. I think he's probably one of the most underrated players in in all professional football.
0: I liked him. I had a lot of praise for him when we were playing Chelsea last season in the Champions League. I think I think the offensive stuff matters though. But I like if you look. I guess it depends on the opponent. But today they needed better overloads because they weren't getting into good positions in the final third. And I feel like if you had like Carvajal or, or whoever, maybe even like Adamo or Marcos Llorente would have helped in this situation. I'm not sure. But if you just had the overloads going past Kimpembe on that side and giving Ferran something to work with. If you look at Azpilicueta and Marcos Alonso's heat map, they're very deep in this game. And so I, I think someone like Carvajal could have helped a lot in that manner. Um, but and and you look at like some of the the switches to Aspiliqueta because he was the open man on the far side, they're just going to be less effective if they're going to be more effective I think if it's Carvajal there. But um, Aspilicueta is a fine choice. So my point was just that I think I think it's silly that if you, you feel like you have to go against Spain because of Luis Enrique is my point. Because uh, I don't know we're, we let's if you look at this objectively, it's not like we have peak Chabi Alonso, Sergio Ramos in the team, you know.
1: Yeah, and like who know, like some of those guys could eventually become Real Madrid players one day. So like it's not, I mean, who knows? Pau Torres, uh, Laporte, Ferran, Ferran Torres, Jeremy. Like there's plenty of guys that could maybe become Real Madrid players one day. You
0: you gotta you gotta admit though, this is like uh, uh if this if you're Uh, Real Madrid fan anti-Spanish national team this was a wet dream for you tonight (laughs) yeah Yeah, seriously (laughs) Uh, Seriously. (laughs) so uh, let's let's wrap it up here we got part two coming up with Omen Grant they are going to recap Real Madrid first win of the season and we'll do some quick housekeeping if you haven't booked tickets to the upcoming Toronto New York Dallas Miami, DC, Chicago, London, Mumbai podcast. Get on that ASAP. Um, And Tuesday, Matt and I will be back over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid to do some stuff, I'm not sure. We're not not gonna have a traditional loan tracker this week, but we'll do something, I'm sure. We'll figure it out off air. So if you want access to at least two bonus shows per week and more usually, patreon.com slash managing Madrid is where you go to pledge, join the army ever growing uh, once we get to a 1,000 patrons, uh, we are going to give away a bunch of stuff, including a signed Cristiano Ronaldo jersey. We are currently sitting at, uh, let's see, 822. So we're about 175, 78 people away. So once you, once you get that, spread spread the word um join the army you guys will not regret you get so much value for like three bucks a month it's nothing it's it's less than a cup of coffee so do that uh support the show and we we'll will be back on tuesday thank you matt appreciate your time
1: thanks again it was All fun right.
0: talk
3: soon take care stick around for part two hello and welcome to las blancas podcast i'm your host om Arvind, and as always i'm joined by grant little we are here to discuss a win for real madrid Femenino two wins in a row. Oh my God. We haven't been able to say that at all this season. This is literally the first time we've won two games in a row. I would say another unconvincing performance, but at this point it feels like we kind of got to take what we get. I don't know if we'd say like the vibes are immaculate, but at least better vibes than where we were like a week, week and a half ago. Right. Yeah. The vibes are better, but not great. I'm not going to
2: lie. I'm (laughs) not, I came away from this happy that we had three points, but also a little a little irritated just that the situation and I'm sure we'll get in to it. But obviously, the three points is the most important thing because we needed them badly. We needed them badly. And this is the first time we'd scored multiple goals in an official match since June 3rd when we did so against Real Sociedad. Or no, the last game of the league, I think, in in um last season. So. A little rough but we we got it done
3: yeah I have to say like it's been a bit of an irritable day for me based off stuff I've learned and then watching this game where it just kind of felt like same old same old it was highly reminiscent of last season's win over a bar where I, I think I you know over the course of 90 minutes that that a side actually played better versus us but we won 3-1 um, because that's that's the quality we had when we raised Aslani getting on the score sheet I think from a penalty and then Cardona as well and then someone else it might have been I Olga. I believe well. Olga. Yeah Olga and so like just that first half was reminding me of it a lot even though like it wasn't really the same high press or anything like that they were a bit more conservative just the idea of Abar outplaying us and then us finding our way back into the game it was reminiscent of that I remember we were high, highly critical of that performance but yeah, it was just I. I think I'm reaching my breaking point a little bit with, as I said, some stuff I've learned, and then it's just the frustration of this performance, where it's like, yeah, we win, but I we really need to kick on from here. Like, hopefully we'll improve. Right? It, the The assumption is we went as low as we can go, though. Apparently, people think we can go lower, and I'll get to that. But you know, and we'll just from natural, you know, confidence, chemistry, we'll will we'll go up from here. I think that's a reasonable conclusion, but. I would like to see so much more coming from the players we have out on the pitch. And that first half performance, it just, it was poor. And Abar had like, they came in with a solid plan and some, and a lot of times that's enough to cause trouble for us. So before we get into talking about the actual game, you know, why I'm so frustrated, some information I've learned. So you probably already saw this. If you saw the squad list article I released because I posted it there, but Pere has re-injured herself, her ankle, and that means probably another month out. And then Maite, who was in the squad versus Kharkiv is like, and then she was like removed for an injury in pre-match preparations. That's probably three to four weeks. So you tell me that news, I'm I'm not going to be that pleased. And then we told you guys prematurely, you know, in hindsight, but that was the information I was getting. I can only tell you what I get. It generally comes from reliable places. But obviously not everything is going to be spot on and you know in hindsight i kind of get the sense that everyone who was telling and it was multiple people right who were being told by their sources i get the sense that it was they were almost communicating their hope rather than the reality because what i have learned now is that osnar is not going anywhere unless it becomes a disastrous situation i have no idea what the fuck that means it seems pretty
2: disastrous already i don't
3: know what what more than one point in out of 15 is like disastrous? This is what I mean when I said some people think apparently we can get lower. So, apparently, Osnar, ha- I mean, obviously, Osnar has the confidence of Anna Roselle, You know, those two are thick as thieves. And then, you know, apparently, Begonia, who is kind of like the deputy of Flo, who's kind of come in to oversee things, and she apparently has confidence in Osnar as well. And those are the two key people. And yeah so that i mean it has to get worse somehow and because we literally were at rock bottom i don't think it can get worse right like i said the natural conclusion to make is we're going to get better just because the players will start to get better and so via that it seems like osnar's job is pretty safe at least until the winter but i mean I, we're gonna find a way to come back to winning ways somehow and then you know obviously the I mean, the, the 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 perception around him, the positive will only become more positive. And so I had some more things to tell you guys, but just in terms of thoughts on this, this, I mean, this one like really kind of put me in a bad mood when I was watching that first half, because it's like, I've been thinking about this, these arguments over whether like for how much Florentino cares, like, should we really criticize Florentino? Because look, at the investment in the team, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really convinced he does, to be honest with you. Um, It feels like we've honestly done the bare minimum. And honestly, the bare minimum can take you a long way in women's football because most teams do less than the bare minimum, let's be frank. And when we look at the lack of comunicado officials, the lack of information being communicated, the lineups being posted maybe like 10 minutes before the game sometimes, squadless, you know, almost being forgotten at times. And and you know stuff like ads on the Twitch stream where Keon decided he was going to watch live today. He went to the Twitch stream and was greeted with some beautiful ads mid match. And he like messaged me and he was like, "The hell is going on?" And I was like, "Welcome to watching Real Madrid Feminino football." So you take all that together. We've been complaining about this for a long time, right? And then the idea of basically a coach remaining in charge through a spell this bad is unprecedented in Real Madrid history, relative to the expectations. That we set at the beginning of the season, right? I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember all a hundred something years of Real Madrid history. So if there's an instance, feel free to correct me. But when there's an expectation, for example, you know, to finish top three, right. And you're well below, like you're really putting yourself in a hole. For example, getting only one point in five games to the, to the point where people are like, God damn, can we even do it? I don't think there's a single manager in Real Madrid history that has survived. And of course when we say Real Madrid history we're talking about the men's team because the women's team has barely existed in Real Madrid's history and that's kind of my point. Right? Like it it just feels like oh yeah I mean you know oh well the women's team is doing bad but you know it's it's the women's team so you you know whatever we'll just see how it writes out. Whereas and you can argue that all of a sudden the most reactionary institution in the history of football that only looks at results when dealing with coaches, right? It's just about results. You know, we, we, have, we play such good football in 14, 15. We have bad luck with injuries. Maybe Ancelotti makes mistakes. Doesn't matter. He's out, right? Lobategi. oh, no, you're out. The only time you've shown any grace is like in an interim period when the expectations have been lowered. But when the expectations are high, which they absolutely were coming into the season, or they should have been, there's no chance. It, there's no process. We don't look at underlying performance. We don't look at if, if the results aren't there, you're out because that's how much we we as an institution care about winning. And it's not like Florentino has ever been stopped from making mm-hmm. a decision by not having requisite football knowledge, right? Like we're not talking about a genius, you know, footballing person, right? I mean, he's he's a financial genius. He's aware of football, obviously he has, you know, he has a mind attuned to the game somewhat, but we're talking about a guy who thought it was okay to replace Makale with Beckham and and stuff like that, right? And obviously he's matured since then, but we're not talking about a genius, right? And so people might say, oh, Florentino's delegating, right? He's delegating the women's section to people, which I'm not saying is necessarily the wrong thing to do, but this idea, and I'm just forming counter-arguments that people might say, I'm not saying people have said this to me, but you know, the idea that it's like, oh, well, he can't make a decision on the coach because it's hands off. I assure you, Quarantino can still read a league table, even though it says feminino next to some of the teams, because that's the only thing ultimately that matters when Real Madrid makes decisions about whether to fire coaches. Where are you in the league table? How many points have you won? It doesn't take any sort of footballing knowledge. And it's, this is just to me what signals on top of everything else, on top of the way the team has been presented, the shoddiness of the communication on social media, et cetera, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, just communicates to me a lack of care coming right from the very top. Because if this was a fucking men's team, this coach would have been gone after the Real Sociedad result at the most, right? Just no chance they stay on. And yet, I mean, Asnar is here. And Obviously, I'm not arguing that you should do it based purely on results, right? That's what we said Asnar probably needs to go after the end of last season. And that was ultimately the conclusion that we came to. I'm just pointing out the discrepancy between the history of like 100 plus years of of a club going only by results, and then bang, all of a sudden, it's about the process. That's bullshit. Like, I don't believe that at all. It's okay. Asnar has somehow convinced a couple of decision makers in the, in, in the women's section, that he's fine. And Florentino is just like, whatever, you know, I, I'm not going to involve myself, right? It's not like Florentino has been involved in any of the transfers. Not, I mean, that's all been Anacrozell. I would start to like seeing a slightly more hands-on approach from the fucking president of the club. Not because I think he's, you know, necessarily going to be an incredible influence, but to show that he cares, right? Because he certainly is hands-on with the men's team and if only with making a decision about the coach. So that's kind of the point I had there. I don't know if you wanted to add anything, Grant. It was a bit of a, a rant there, but I kind of need no, to get that off my chest. I completely it's
2: am on the same page. And the thing that is the most baffling is, yes, last year we wanted to have a new coach because although results, the, the results were above and beyond what we, any of us predicted early on in the season, we did not really, we thought, qualifying was best case scenario i don't think any of us said that second place was going to happen but you look at the way that we played and a lot of it was due to the talent on the field and not because we had a system that was really turning teams over and you know establishing our dominance we had some of that toward the end of the game but it was far or the end of the season but it was far too inconsistent for a team that has the aspirations or should have the aspirations that we that we hold it to, and then this year, there's so many things that go wrong, right? We we've talked about them over and over again, but it's the same process. Problems, the results are almost as poor as they could possibly get, and for some reason, there's still no change. There's still no, you know, I don't know if it's no accountability, no no care. I don't. I don't know what it is, but with this result and the way that the team has played on the pitch, because there are differences. You know, Lopetegui had this really interesting situation where at times there were good things going on, but they were just so unlucky. We have been so unlucky, but we've also been poor. We haven't been good. And I don't think we were good today at all, but we got a result. And this is bound to happen when you have, Players of a higher quality, and this is how luck works. But if if this streak didn't get him out, I I mean I don't know what does because the performances were poor, the results were very poor. I don't know how I don't know how you could say like if it gets worse, we'll get rid of you. Like it's gotten about as worse as you can. And I've been on this podcast and said I don't think that we can qualify for the Champions League this year based on the hole that we've dug ourselves so far. I know you have a differing opinion than that, and I would love to be proven wrong, but, like, how can it get worse? Relegation battle? I mean, we're kind of there right now. We have tons of time to turn it around, and I don't think we'll be there. But it's about as bad as it can get.
3: What, What it communicates to me is, like, if you're saying the situation we're in, it has to get worse than that when it can't get worse. You're essentially communicate there's nothing that can happen that essentially will will have him go i I can't imagine what situation can kind of rise that would be worse than this so basically you're just kind of giving him a blank check you can kind of do whatever you want whether you think he should stay or not and um I think we're up to like eighty seven percent of people saying he should go on the las Blancas poll we should do excluding the people who chose to only see results which is up from sixty four percent from the end of last season so if you're listening to this you probably agree that he should go but even if you think he shouldn't, because there are some people, I don't think it's the greatest message to send saying you can, the team can perform as poorly as possible and you're safe. Because, and I, I, I don't necessarily think like the, the bulk of what should drive a manager should be this like, constant fear that they're going to go, but there has to be something there, right? Like some fear that, you know, if I don't <laughs> ensure that the ship goes in the right direction, I'm gone. And it's, there's just a sense. That doesn't exist, and Osnar's like, Nah, I'm I'm cool. Whatever happens, right? We can literally have the worst start imaginable, and it's fine. Now, the other part of this, which makes this entire situation more baffling for me, is there is a certain group of players within the dressing room who want him gone, and they're pretty actively pushing for it in the dressing room. I know names, but I'm not going to say any names because I think that goes beyond the bounds of what I should be allowed to reveal i don't want to put anyone in a tough spot but there's there's a group of players that want to there are some players that you know are on the fence really don't know what position they should have there are some players that are tired of this you know ordeal and kind of the drama that comes with it so i don't i don't want to inaccurately say that like every single player is he's out but there's a group of players that actively just want him gone and Obviously, this sort of came up with the Kike Martin article, but I'm not saying this from that. I reported on that, but I have separate source saying that there's a group of players that want him out. And the Kike Martin article just said the players want him out. He also said there was a letter about, you know, sent to the board or something that wanted him out. That they wanted to take their request public, and um, you know that they didn't like talk to. Osnar Roselle on the bus going home, like a lot of that is just exaggeration. I don't I mean, I'm not aware of the existence of a letter basically I, I'm, I'm fairly certain there was no desire to take the request public and the thing about like not talking to Osnar and stuff on the way like it just that seems kind of made up. but fundamentally, this idea of there being players in the plural who want Osnar gone, that's basically true from what I know and that to me should be like a clear signal, right? In, in everything you're assessing, okay, the results are poor, the process doesn't back it up, right? Which the only defense for all of this, because it's not all Osnar's fault, right? We, we, we talked about his injuries, players haven't been performing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, the argument for keeping him would be like, it's not, there's nothing there that Osnar does wrong to keep him. But again, we have the sample size from last season. So, but there so so there is no process argument even though they might feel like it and then you have like a, a sizable portion of the dressing room also against him like this just seems a recipe for like i mean this is a perfect storm that leads to change in every every club right bad results process not great players against you that's doom for managers everywhere yeah, and, it,
2: and it should be i think I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to like just be like fire all the managers. But well, if I'm just, all of that is
3: wrong, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just like stating facts here. I'm not. I mean, obviously, people know my argument, but right now, I'm not even stating one way or the other. I'm just comparing Real Madrid's situation to every other situation and wondering what's so different here. And again, like the, it's not like Real Madrid has suddenly become some enlightened entity that doesn't i mean we're literally the most reactionary institution in the history of football from the fans all the way up to the president we have zero patience anything goes wrong instantly it's a crisis it's a disaster all i can take this as a sign is quarantino Perez doesn't really care because if he did he would be reacting the same way he's just yeah whatever you know barca is gonna win blah 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 like I mean, I'm sorry, like, I, probably people don't want to hear this, but I think it's fairly evident. It doesn't care. And then Osnar has won the confidence of the of key delegators. With Ana Rosell, it's really not a surprise at all, given the history and the way they go back. And then, you know, I don't know, Begonia or whatever, he's done something. Maybe she believes the injuries are what screwed him. But yeah, he's basically safe from what I understand. And um, yeah, I guess just... I'm not, I'm not, again, it's just one source, but if he was going to be sacked, I think it would have happened by now. I don't understand, like, what are we waiting for exactly, right? So I I think that's it. I think we just live with it, at least until winter. So anyone who has hope, I would temper that a bit. I don't think it's happening. So that's what I kind of wanted to just to reveal the information that I'm aware of. We're not in a harmonious situation currently. And um, there's a lot of Interesting things happening in the dressing room right now. Um, so it's it's not just the fans. I mean, some players are, are fed up. And um, yeah, I also just wanted to clarify kind of what was true, what wasn't true in the Kike Madian report, because to be frank, this guy, the only stuff this guy posts is anti-Madrid stuff. And um, he tends to, you know, overblow everything for the sake of it. So well, this is supposed to be a post-match podcast. So let's get into the game. Um, I don't think Either of us were actually that surprised that Osnar went with the back three because we saw it versus Arkiv. We ended up winning 1-0. Um, again, as, as I mentioned before, our central midfielders are still out. In fact, they got injured again. So we see the back three, Rocio Gavez, Ivana Andres, Pavit, Peter, Claudio Florentino again playing in midfield with Claudio Zernosa, Lorena Navarro, Olga Kenty on the flanks as wing backs, and then Caroline Muller Hansen getting a start over Atenea. So there's some rotation there. And then Nayikari Garcia kind of riding up the 11. And then Melian Gerard as well, getting the start over Misa. And I think this is her first return to action after her broken finger. What did you think about this? I mean, were you surprised? And then I guess, like the main, I guess, point would be Muller over Atenea and, and whether you agreed with that.
2: Yeah, I had no problem with a little rotation, just considering the schedule and how many players we already have injured. Like the last thing we want to do is overload players, and then have more players injured because honestly, we just can't we can't afford that at the moment. So I was fine with that. I was actually excited for Muller Hansen that she actually got a real opportunity to come on and show show her stuff because she's come on in like ten minute or less cameos for the majority of her time. With Real Madrid didn't really have the proper preseason because of when she was signed so I was excited to kind of get a look at her what she could do maybe you know analyze something a little different because it's felt like we've seen a lot of the same things over and over again from you know structurally from what the opponents do to cause problems for us to our lack their lack of solutions so this was this was something that I had marked down early on I was like I'm excited to watch this and I mean, she didn't disappoint. We'll get into it, but I, I was completely fine with the lineup, especially because we're going midweek, weekend, midweek. Um, with two Champions leagues games sandwiching this game against ibar
3: I don't know exactly what to think of the back three yet. I think it's a decent counter for not really having midfielders. I mean, we have the personnel to, to play it, like we have attacking wing, wing backs. Um, I think Muller playing in, a, in two up top, I think I talked about this, might actually be her best position. And I was fine with the rotation. Athaneya is like, we've been running her into the ground. Her form had kind of dipped a little recently. There's a lot of pressure on her shoulders. Eventually, we have to find a way to work Muller into, into form, right? So I, I think we've fine. got
2: to be uh, careful with Athaneya too, just because she's so young and the way she plays, she takes a lot of hard hits, which we saw today as well. Right, And you just want to make sure that no one gets injured. So giving a player like that rest is really important.
3: Yeah, so the one thing I was kind of looking out for, which I didn't like from last time, was Claudio Fuentino's positioning. And like for like the first couple of minutes, I was like, this is a double pivot. This is better. And then Claudio Fuentino started roaming into like attacking midfield roles and stuff. And I thought it was pretty clearly the same 3-4-3 three, three we saw versus Kharkiv with Claudia Florentino kind of playing this right-sided interior girl. And I don't know how you felt about her performance, but I thought it was pretty similar in the sense that she just wasn't comfortable at all. She wasn't sure how to offer herself. There was a lot of energy, a lot of moving around, but not much of it was very purposeful. And it hindered her offense a bit because she's going to be offering herself to the flank or between the lines. And she wasn't that useful there. Again, not very surprised. I don't expect her to do better than that because that's not her position. I just thought it was interesting that Osnar saw what he saw versus Kharkiv, and he's like, let me not adjust to that at all and he utilize her in kind of the same way. Um, just in general, everything was a lot more fluid. So, it, you know, Claudia Fontino did drop off deeper at times, but, like, generally I thought she was playing the same role, and I don't know if I came away with different conclusions. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I do. I, I think that she was maybe a little better defensively when we were pressing I think that has a lot to do with the front three who I who I thought pressed pretty well took good angles closed down and really kind of created most of our opportunities through their pressure I thought she did a fine job coming in behind them and kind of picking up some balls maybe putting in some challenges jumping passing lanes but that other than that I mean I think it was about the same performance level performance that you could that we saw against Kharkiv and what you could ex- expect realistically because she's she's just not made she, this isn't her her role.
3: Yeah, so it was a pretty shit half. I think is fair to be say. I think it was better than when I like watched a live time because I was not really in the best mood as I kind of mentioned before. And I went back and it's like okay, it's not like we were getting overrun or anything. And when I think about the fir- the Ibar performance from last season, it wasn't like we weren't giving up that many one versus ones like they had an early chance that that melin did like a good job saving they obviously got the goal but it wasn't like oh my god with a conceding chance after chance it was it was like the game was basically in abar's favor a little bit which wasn't good because we're the better team right we need to put points on the board and so it wasn't a great first half not disastrous but it was not a great first half it was interesting because abar did a bunch of like Things and they ended up changing their entire system in the second half. And just in general, that that second half was a mess to assess because a lot of things changed. The camera angle sucks and it took me forever to figure it out. And it might not be 100% accurate. So just keep that in mind. But they start off with what I kind of see as like a 4 1 4 1 defensive block. Just they didn't press with nearly the same intensity as we've seen them before. There were definitely pressing moments, but in generally holding that line deeper looking to engage us more in midfield, not looking to press all three center backs at the same time. And they, they are kind of like loaded up against our right-hand side because they know we're, we're going to want to play through Ivana. Kenty is there. And we generally like to start play from that side, right? So it's obvious they kind of scouted that. They kind of loaded up their far side winger or their, 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 their left winger dropping in deep, making sure to be right on that touch line. And this may have confused people a little bit, but one of their central midfielders would step up onto Zornoza and kind of shadow her before dropping off. So it kept coming in and out of that midfield line. So, and and this, again, this is on the left-hand side, because on their left-hand side, because again, we're building out from the right. Zornoza is the one starting place. She kind of gravitates there. So they were really kind of loaded up well. Their single pivot would kind of like screen between the lines and kind of shift over to their left and our right. And then Arola Aparicio, who is their right winger, would tuck in a tiny bit just just to kind of either protect against a midfielder dropping off, maybe just be on that far side center back if we tried to switch. And that was kind of like their general starting defensive structure, because most of the time we built from the right. And I think because they were playing with a wider midfield line, right, they had the defensive midfielder in, they were loaded up automatically to one flank. We had, we had a harder time finding space down the flanks like we did versus Harkiv. I thought both teams were similarly compact in preventing central, proget- central progression, but versus Harkiv, eventually we just, we just kept finding a ton of space down the flanks and it was easy entrances in the final third. It was much harder versus Abar. We tried to play combinations down the right and they packed that side really well and they dispossessed us and made things difficult. Florentino was often the one offering herself on the right, which didn't help much either. And um, generally, our best moments were coming when we were like switching to Olga, because again, Aparicio would kind of step in a little bit. But when we switched, right, their their fullback would did a pretty good job of actually like stepping up and immediately onto Olga and and just making the channel ball harder. And we were never really able to play that successfully, even though you know, we kind of had the opportunity to. So they had like a, a decently designed system to, to deal with what they were doing. They looked like they scouted what we did versus hard thief. They had a clear way of dealing with it. And um, we didn't have a way of reacting. Grant, I think you mentioned it. Like we face a team that sets up defensively. We don't have ideas to disorganize them.
2: Yeah. I, that's exactly what I saw. I was, I was irritated early this morning. Didn't have a lot of sleep and just saw that, you know, they weren't doing anything extra special. It's not like some of these things that we've seen Barcelona do or Natalia Arroyo roll out with Real Sociedad where you're like, wow, that we just got outclassed tactically. And sometimes you tip your hat. No, this is just, you know, they were well-organized. They were well-structured. They, well they had a plan. And usually when teams have a plan against us, they limit our ability to get in wide areas, especially. We just don't really know how to adapt to that on the fly. And you, you end up seeing games that are really stop-start, that tilt in the favor of the team that's well-organized. And then we start throwing more numbers in attack, and maybe you leave yourself a little more vulnerable on, in transition because that's your only option because you're, you're unaware of how else to, to break that defense down.
3: Yeah, so it was a good plan. And I, I really the only way we got through it was when we, just in a few moments, they weren't compact enough. They left space between the lines. Muller dropped off. And that's how we ended up creating the equalizing goal, actually, which we'll get to. And that was like, I just didn't see that much more. I mean, there are a couple of times we got down the flank, but like I, these moments will all happen, right? It's about what, what do we do in the grade. It's just that thanks to Muller, we were able to be efficient. And um, I, I mean, I thought she had a great game on the day. And when we get to the goal, I guess we can talk about her performance as a whole. And so the other thing Abar were doing, right, because it wasn't just a defensive thing, they were troubling us on the offensive end. So their, their defensive structure, giving them transitions, and obviously because Orolo Aparicio was often positioned rather high and a little inside when they were defending. And we weren't, again, another issue with us not consistently going side to side, not really looking to shift that defense more to create more openings and not just have to wait for the defense to give it to us. But anyway, so they get the turnovers. Aparicio immediately hits the gap. because in behind the fullbacks and they're playing through balls looking to get runners in transition that was a problem and then also like especially later on in the first half they started to play good stuff coming out from the back and i just think they like exploited our press well because we were pressing with the front two lorena was on the defensive midfielder and then we'd kind of need our our central material is and Florentino to shade over, but because they were in a double pivot, it was difficult for them to access the wing. And so they would kind of bait, you know, by, by dropping that fullback off, they would bait one of our wingers to step up. This was mostly on their left-hand side. So our right-hand side. So they bait Henty to come all the way up to access the fullback because the double pivot can't get there. And then their striker would drop off and drag Ivana there. And that's when their, you know, winger starts, you know, connects, looks to make a run in behind with one of their central midfielders. The fullback would join in combinations, make underlapping runs. Basically, they were able to overload the flank because we'd have a fullback, we'd have our wide center back coming up, and then we'd have a central midfielder versus their fullback, a wide player, striker, and central midfielder. So they were able to create four versus threes on the flanks because we lacked defensive width in midfield because of the way we were pressing we decided to go player to player instead of you know blocking off the pivot with with one of the strikers like we usually do so that was an interesting choice and they got they had moments where they were just able to cut us apart on the flank got into the final third attack kind of stunted from there but it looked like they they were like really simple passing combinations it wasn't anything super genius it's just that they had the free player on that side and they were able to execute So that kind of stood out to me as like, oh, they have another idea of how to kind of clearly exploit what we're doing. And um, I thought that gave us trouble. And it all just kind of contributed to a half that we weren't really able to control. They were, Abar spent a surprising amount of time with the ball and entering our final third. And it just wasn't the greatest performance. Basically, I thought tactically, they kind of had our number in the first half. And then besides Muller, it's not like any player was stepping up massively to kind of cover it, right?
2: Yeah, I, I immediately thought that the amount of importance on the offensive and defensive end for the wingbacks, Kenty and Olga, was going to be an issue because they're both great players, but they were so integral in offense that they need to get forward, they need to overlap, but then if Ivar tries to go quickly, go in transition, it requires them to get back so quickly quickly as well and you saw a lot of the time that Ivar was having success in behind Olga on the outside of that third center back over there and it seemed like we didn't really have a plan for how the back three was supposed to protect against that width and how and there was no real adjustment to cover for Olga when
3: she gets forward yeah so normally When you have three center backs, defending the channels is not the issue you're most worried about, because that's the point of having three center backs. You can send the full backs up way higher. You have the wide center backs position in the half spaces. You can defend those areas. But basically, Abar knew, especially with Ivana, like she's going to be really aggressive. She's going to step up. If we can overload that side and we're crisp with our passes, we can exploit the fact there'll be spacing behind her. So they drag the full back up. They drag Ivana up. And then it's kind of like up to Rosio to be the one covering, but she's the central center back, right? She can't come all the way over and they were able to play through go one versus one with her. And yeah, I mean, it was just a case of like getting the extra number there and being able to exploit what they knew we'd do defensively. And I just thought, I I really think we, we needed Lorena defending wider, right? So we could, we could commit more numbers there without completely conceding the far side, which is what we were scared to do with that double pivot. And, You know, regardless, we conceded the the far side anyway because there's only so much you can defend with the so 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 much of the pitch you can defend in a double pivot in midfield. There were moments where kind of Lorena like adjusted and tried to do it, but on the whole, it was like that kind of triangle defensive structure, double pivot, five at the back, and it was just too easy to suck our players forward and play through us on the wings. Speaking of defensive issues, that goal we conceded, Grant. That wasn't great, wasn't it?
2: Oh, my God. I was so pissed. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this goal comes in the 18th minute. It's coming off of a corner kick. Ivana heads it out to the top of the 18. Ibar heads it back in. Rocio kind of heads it out and toward the... It would be her left of the box. Ibar's right of the box. And... Morera takes this kind of heavy touch in between Nahikari and Olga, and the entire defense freezes for a minute while Morera just sprints toward the ball. It was like they all stopped playing because they thought it was going to go out. Morera gets to the ball. Olga is completely out of position. Nahikari is late to arrive to try and put pressure on the player that's crossing. She's able to really pick a pass. Still not terrible. We had numbers in the box. We had the area of the box that the cross went into. We had like four players and should have been able to to get ahead on the ball. The ball's going straight towards Bob's, who kind of waits for the ball to come to her rather than attacking the ball. And in comes Kuki just sprinting through, taps it in. It was just shambolic defending from start to finish
3: so that was poor that obviously was my worst point of the day and i was just like was not not here we go again is what i thought yeah and it was i felt like it was coming i thought abar were clearly better up until that point and uh, i didn't feel like it was undeserved we managed to get ourselves back into the game and and this is where i think it really was muller i think lorena was again doing her thing having another solid performance um one of the better players on the ball, Zornoza was better than, than versus Kharkiv, but I don't think it was anything special. He still had her issues. Moeller, I think, was really quite impressive on the day and um, basically the only player in attack until Attheeo came on. I thought Naikari, I and mean, we talked about oh Naikari's link up best link up game was in this last Champions League match. Let's see if it continues. It did not continue, in my opinion. I thought her touches were sloppy, admittedly not necessarily put in the best position to receive at all times, but just wasn't as crisp as I wanted it to be. And um, I mean, not to drag this whole thing up, but I do think, you know, we've seen a large sample size without Esther now. And I do believe there are incompatibility issues between them. I mean, I did like literally just 40 minutes straight as Grant just sat there talking about the entire thing but as i pointed out then like it, that can't be the only reason i think this is showing this is this is why and i'm not even saying it's on night party, but like there are other factors involved right it's not just oh man esther's destroying her well esther's gone and it's still not been great and um yeah i mean if the team is not going to play well as a whole if we're not going to be able to progress the ball reliably and Naikari is also not able to you know do efficient link up play then she's going to have a poor performance regardless of who's next to her And I didn't think she was really all that great today. Really, it was Muller, to me, who was the most efficient. I think she started to get used to, okay, I know where other players are going to move. I know when I should drop off, when I should get to the ball. I think that little cameo she had versus Harkiv, which was decent, it was nothing amazing, but we finally had something to talk about. I think that gave her the confidence she needed. And then she came into this one and was just a lot more purposeful. She didn't look lost, essentially. And uh, she was the only player who was really able to proceed between the lines, showed well, linked decently. There were a couple of good carrying sequences. And I, I felt like we, okay, we finally got to see, okay, this is what she can offer us, right? She's, she's a good back-to-goal player. She can carry the ball nicely, decent dribbler, can get herself out of certain situations. And then she has an added box threat, which we saw on the goal, which I, I grant, I mean, you can break it down fully, but receives links play sends it wide and then a really sharp run on the blind side splits the defenders excellent header you know it's a classic movement where you drop off make make the make the late run where the defenders can't see you and put it away like that was just a textbook movement and that got us back in the match when it kind of we were like where the hell is the goal gonna come from it's a really good performance from her i think people were riding her off way too soon i mean i know some of it is jokes but i, I think it was going a little too far like we've downgraded from Jakobsen and Cardona to like Caroline Muller. I mean, like she's barely got a chance to throw herself, right? Like, I don't know what you were expecting. And now that she's finally got a bit of rhythm, that was a good performance and it was the game changing performance.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, even if you're going to make those comparisons, at least Muller stays on side most of the time. That's all I'll say about that. But um, if we, <laughs> if we could just hop into that goal, I actually kind of want to start because I was rewatching it. And, you know, while, while I'm doing this, I'm live tweeting, I'm taking notes, I'm writing the immediate reaction, all of these things. And so I didn't really notice it. But this is one of those things that I kind of criticized the team about last time, about sustaining pressure. And this wasn't necessarily waves of pressure, but you see. Some traces of what we were able to do toward the end of last year on this. You see Lorena pick up a loose pass in in Ivar's half. Quick touch to Claudia of Florentino, who plays kind of like this wall pass that's under hit to Zornosa. And because it's a little under hit, Zornosa has to sprint towards it and take it over a sliding defender. And then she has space. She can take her space a little bit, plays it wide to Kenty Robles down that right flank, cross. It gets cleared back out, and we recycle possession after Lorena wins it back through the counter press all the way back to the goalkeeper, and this is where we start to see the origins of the goal. We build from the back. Ivana eventually gets it, goes to Kenty. Kenty plays a ball back to Rocio. Rocio plays a really nice line-raking pass, and this is where we're talking about Muller dropping off. Muller drops off to receive back to goal. Nice layoff. Muller then, as soon as she makes that touch to lay it off, curls to start making her run in the box, and Lorena goes to Kenty down the flank, that same spot where she was just in. This time, Kenty gets the cross absolutely perfect, finds the head of Muller, and that was a heck of a finish with her head.
3: Yeah, good stuff from Rosio as well. I thought this was one of her better games on the ball. Still had you know some cough-ups and giveaways and et cetera, et cetera, but... The best passes from the back kind of came from her. I felt like Ivana was lacking again today with some of her distribution. Grossio, I think we can use her ability to switch a bit more, especially when you have a defense that's really loading up one side and has the far side winger coming up. But yeah, I mean, she she found some good line breaking passes and I thought she had a pretty good game on the ball. And um, that's kind of what I expected from her coming in. Like she's, we could, we could debate who's the better defender. And I think, there probably is based on what we the evidence we've seen so far this season but Rocio is to be an upgrade on the ball and um you know it's nice to see like glimpses of this quality because if Ivana is going to have off days we need that next to her so yeah good stuff from Rocio anything else we kind of want to touch on in the first half
2: no I don't think so I think it was clear just the the energy again after scoring the goal this team is extremely like i don't like volatile like when things go wrong they go too low and when things go right they may even get a little too high we need to have the confidence to be able to kind of ride game state whether it's good or bad but that kind of helps us you know it helped us in um in the kharkiv game and and things like that i just for for this team to perform consistently i would just like to see them have a little bit more mental fortitude when things get good to not get over excited and when things get bad to not get too down in the dumps and stay centered and continue to try and do what you know you have to do to win this game
3: and i think that's kind of the struggle with it with any team that's that's trying to understand the expectations and difficulties of being at the top, of being the favorites. And uh, I think that will come with time, but I, was, I think it's going to be a while, right? And uh, I, I expect to see a little bit more of this as we continue these games because I don't think the conference is fully back yet, right? We're building it brick by brick again. It was completely shattered prior to the Harkiv game, as we could see, and how atrocious our performances were. And even in that game as well, as we discussed. So second half, this is where everything just becomes incredibly confusing. It took a couple of rewatches for me to get it all down. But Abar, for whatever reason, changed their system. And I think this was a mistake because I was trying to figure out, obviously, the goal gave us more, but I was trying to figure out like what really changed in the second half. And obviously, Athanea comes on and stuff like that. But I think the biggest thing in terms of why Abar didn't have that like tactical superiority anymore was because they changed. And like they change things completely, so you you have two substitutions: Shayla on for Ruth and Nerea on for Ida, and they go from that four-one-four-one type structure to what I identified as a four-four-two diamond, with the center back moving into midfield, the left winger moving at the left back. Like there were a series of rotations that happened. That was just, and that's why it just made it like so difficult to figure out what the hell was going on because you know, I was used to seeing number three at in the defensive line, and then suddenly she's bombing forward, and I'm like, wait, wait, what is going on? But essentially kind of settling in on it being like a four-four-two diamond. And the interesting thing was like attacking and defending in that same shape. I have no clue why she did why the manager did this. Maybe I can find some post match quotes that maybe explains it. I don't know if he even talks about it, but they went to 442 Diamond. And the only thing I can guess is that they started to get a bit scared that Muller was finding some space between the lines. And they felt like, okay, we need to shut that down. So let's pack the center like this yeah, and then maybe that would deal with it, but I just think it killed everything that was good about what they were doing in the first half, which was they had the nice defensive width versus our wing backs. They were denying us the ability to go wide just super easily. We'd have to do a lot more to manufacture space there. And then it helped them in attack because they were able to overload wide areas, take advantage of our defenders stepping up and then play in behind. if you're going to play with the diamond you're playing through the center i mean you can still send a central midfielder and striker over there but it's not nearly as natural like just the structure of the the nominal formation is you're going to play through the middle and overload the center a lot more which just wasn't a bars game at all and that's kind of like the structure with which they attack and i just think i just felt like it took everything away from them they still had their moments here and there again in transition they were still able to get going but i just felt like they didn't really have that much of a chance anymore of scoring a goal once they did that, because offensively, they they killed their main method of progression besides transitions. And then defensively, all of a sudden, and I got this sense in the second half without really being able to understand why until I went back, we started to get way more space out wide. And it just became worse for them when Athenya came on and was able to kind of go one versus one and was able to attack those wide channels. So there are more adjustments to talk about, but Ben, I don't know. If you had like any thoughts about that, any, any indication of why they may have gone that way after what felt like a fairly successful approach in the first half, even if they did end up seeding.
2: Yeah, I think that maybe this is um, that, that reactionary results-based change that we were maybe talking about a little bit with managers, but seeing this on the pitch with the formation switch, because I thought Ibar outplayed us in the first half. We had that one like three-minute section where we, we looked good, and other than that, we did not really play well, but Ivar didn't also create all that much, so maybe they're worried, like you said, about Muller dropping in a little bit, and maybe they thought that this was going to give them a little more creativity, a little bit better opportunity to move the ball forward, but like you said, it didn't really work out that way, and it eventually allowed us a lot of a space in the channels which they had previously done a really good job of limiting us to
3: so we make our substitutions in the 64th minute del castillo comes on for naikari and lucia rodriguez comes on for olga and like those are basically straight swaps i mean we know lucia is not a left back but we don't have a left back so basically straight swaps and i'm like oh, okay, we're just going to keep the same formation. Ateneo is going to play up top like she did versus Kharkiv, and it's just going to be the same 3-4-3. And about like five minutes in, I'm like, where the fuck is Ivana? And she was in midfield, and it was so hard to figure out what we were doing because people were moving all over the place. And eventually what I settled on is we also went with the 4-4-2 diamond with Ivana Andres playing as the pivot in defensive midfield, Florentino off to the right in that more advanced role. Zornoza dropping off on the left, which gave it this asymmetric look and ma- made it harder to figure out what was going on. And then Lorena kind of floating as the number 10, in addition to making runs in behind the line, which again made it more confusing because sometimes it looked like we had a three up top. And then basically Atenea still being a striker along with Muller, except it's 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 a two up top with now a number 10. And Yeah, that was basically it. That's how I identified it. It could be something else, but I think that's... And again, it was so fluid. Again, this is partly semantics, but I think that's the most accurate way of putting all the different shapes I saw together into one is that I think we changed 442 diamond. And I genuinely have no clue why we did this, aside from the fact that we were just trying to match their formation, which I don't know gave us an advantage because I thought we were actually, we had adapted actually well defensively uh, with, you know, Lorena being more in a, in a line of three, this, this is before the subs. And, um, you know, in, in conjunction with Abar struggling to build wide, we were, we were defending those areas well. And then we kind of go back to the same situation where, you know, we need our central midfielders to come all the way over. And then we're giving them space in the channel. And I, I don't know exactly what it gave us defensively whether it gave us more offensively, I didn't notice a huge change because the dynamics were still pretty similar with... Nathanael would have had the same role kind of either way if she played with the back three versus the diamond behind her. But uh, I I don't know. I think Osnar pretty clearly reacted to that. And he's like, well, Ivana Andres, you go play in defensive midfield. And uh, that's what happened. How did you like Ivana's performance just in midfield in general? Like, I mean, first of all, did you see the same thing I was seeing? And um, of what you saw, how did you like Ivana kind of just roaming in all those zones?
2: It was hard to tell. (laughs) It was very hard to tell, like you were talking about. But I thought the formation switch led to us losing control and avoiding a little bit of chaotic transition, which we benefited from, especially with Athenea and Lucia. But it also left some very, very, very dangerous gaps at the back. And I think you get into a lot of trouble when you're moving players out of position that you're just going to have misunderstandings across all lines of the pitch. The spacings vertically, the spacings horizontally. And I don't think she did all that bad. But the fact that it was so hard for us to figure out (laughs) like the formation other than the atrocious camera angle says something about maybe the lack of structure. And like that can be fine. And like when you're attacking, because you could have these float fluid motions that we see Barcelona play with and things like that. But when you're defending, you normally want to have a pretty clear structure. And I, and I think we lost that a bit and I don't think we defended all that well in the first half, but I think we were very vulnerable toward the end of the match. And if there were some better passes, Ibar could have carved out a couple chances.
3: Yeah. If we have Alexia Puteas, Aitana Bonmati, Kadri Gijaro, Mariona Caldente, sure. Let's be ultra fluid. Let's play total football. When I have Ivana Andres, Claudio Florentino, Claudio Zornoza, Lorena Navarro in field, maybe I want a little more structure, a little more clarity over what exactly is going on. So it definitely like things became like just super chaotic. Like it's a lot more end to end. I thought Ivana was all right. I, I think it was clear she had more idea of what she was doing than Claudia, for example. But again, if Claudia played in defense defensive midfield, she might have a clear idea. I thought some of her passes were decent. But it was just like, it was all over the place. By the way, we were also defending in a similar way to Abar in that we just stayed in our shape. So it was like player to player everywhere all of a sudden, which would contribute chaotic atmosphere. And yeah, it was, I don't know if it had that much of an impact besides that, because Abar probably like killed themselves a little bit with what they did and they just couldn't get that much going but the fact that we brought Atenea on made this entire thing a net positive or it coincided like all of this coincided to be a net positive because Atenea got her mojo back one versus one there were nutmegs there were turns she was just going straight after after defenders who suddenly had no protection on the flank and um, I thought she played well it was a really bright cameo from her it's good to see that a couple games where things aren't coming off from her doesn't get her down. She still goes at defenders with the same confidence, the same verb, and it was great. It was a great cameo. I thought she added a lot, and I think she might be the one to make Keon's column where he talks about the women's team for the first time. But we'll have to wait and see. But um, it was a good game for Keon to catch live and see his his new favorite around feminino player kind of come alive so that was positive and i think that ultimately kind of contributed to us having the the better of the second half for kind of the rest of it but other than that i don't think i think i had a much better feeling about the second half live because my emotions were just swinging wildly whereas rewatching it was like yeah we're better but ultimately i don't know if come away with, with it from this with like massive confidence because again I don't know how much we actually created from open play. I mean, there were there were some dangerous set pieces. There obviously the goal we scored. There was a Bobek Peter header. There was one Ivana Andres shot that was just like went over the bar from you know the inside of the box. But and then obviously the Lorena chance very early on. But other than that, it I didn't see that much. Um, perhaps I'm forgetting stuff. You can remind me.
2: There, there was that one chance right at the beginning of the second yeah, half. that's the that, Lorena. Yeah, Loren-ish that, that, that Mueller ca- carved out again, and that, that was a good chance. But even still, that wasn't a great chance. It looked like a good chance because it was close. But, you know, a shot at the top of the 18 isn't always, you know, a very high XG chance.
3: No, you, that's a fair point. We're, we're very much a process of result, as we've been talking about type people here. But it was it was a decent opportunity. If that comes in the context of a bunch of better chances, like that's fine. It's nice to it that, right. that way. The position in the players dictated that would happen. It was good play from Muller. But when that's one of the best chances you create in the half, then, you know, I don't know. But set pieces is what did it for us. Right. Claudia swings that in really unable to clear it. I think Victor gets the touch. Right. And then, if she
2: got a touch, I watched it back a few times. And she made a good move to get in front of the center back and put her off. i go back and forth on whether she actually got a touch, but she did enough that it's an assist in my book, whether she got the touch or not.
3: She had a screen
2: assist. There you go. Basketball
3: term there. So she did something there that clearly influenced the ball, getting to Rocio and Rocio had a good rep in preseason of somehow at the back post, always finding a way to get on the ball. And that gets us the three points here. She puts it away. It was a really finish. good finish. No, it was a really good finish. And so overall, I think a pretty good performance from her when you put everything together. And it was, it was, it was mainly her influence on the offensive end, which was kind of accentuated by the fact that she scored. And that, that was really enough. And that didn't surprise me based on the way the second half was going. Like, I felt like, okay, that's going to be the winner. I really don't feel like either side has enough to get one more. And I think that's just kind of how it played out. So I'm basically kind of at the end of, you know, kind of chronologically going through the stuff that happened in this match. Any other points you want to touch on? Any other player performances?
2: Yeah, we touched on Athenea Again, I just want to say Lucia had a really good cameo. Um, We've been a little tough on her at times. She didn't have as much defensive responsibility in that second half, but she came on and really broke lines, was able to drive at the defense and looked good.
3: I think Lucia has quietly got a lot better on the ball the past few games. And um, the other shot, I guess I forgot, she has one where she dribbles to the edge of the box and fires a shot on goal. Like her carrying has finally come to life a little bit. I think starting with that Real Sociedad game, we started to see her on ball quality come to court a little bit more. I think there's still a long ways to go. And I think she's a very, very good player and can put in like she can do more than just show sparks. Like she can put in consistently great stuff over 90 minutes. But I think it's gone under the radar because we all are like, well, she doesn't look great at left back. I mean, fine, but I think on the ball, she's gotten better and better. I think we're, versus Harke, if we talked about, oh, a lot of times she was in bad situations and ran the ball into a bunch of people, but she was still able to get herself out of certain situations. And I think she's slowly kind of finding her way. And this is, this is what's going to take us forward and back to better form before the better players come back is players' new signings starting to find their way like Muller, like Lucia, hopefully Zornoza, hopefully Naikari at some point. And so, yeah, it was a good cameo. I was going to forget to mention her, so I'm glad you brought her up. Carla Camacho comes on for Muller in the 86th, 87th minute. That was her debut for the first team. It was a really emotional moment. There were fans at Di Stefano, and so, like, they were really appreciative of that moment. She posted, like, a tweet afterwards that was like, you know, thank you, Real Madrid, for making my dream come true. I think another example like what the woman's section means beyond just being a football team. I was more yeah. interested whether you had any notes on her. I just, I mean, I just don't think there was an I really to, that was immediate f-
2: reaction time yeah. where I was grinding that out. She was the youngest debutante in our our short history. So 16 yeah. years and I think 164 days. Yeah, so absolute a of, child.
3: <laughs> a bit of a bit of history there. Yeah, an absolute child. Uh, a bit of history there and um i think one to watch for the future we do have a lot of promising young players Paula Partido is in the squad we've discussed Ariana arias before though she hasn't been getting the, Which, the
2: alliteration names coming through the academy <laughs> i love it
3: i just noticing that now
2: <laughs> i i noticed it when you said it but that's pretty is that impressive. is that
3: how we're deciding you know what, if if they're this talented, maybe there's something to it. You know, we'll yeah, co- I'm going to have to something
2: that starts with an L.
3: What's the R squared value for players <laughs> who have have like the, the same starting letter for their first and last name and footballing ability? I, I Maybe it'll be statistically significant. Who knows? So, yeah, a good moment there. That was like, I think, my favorite moment of the game. Well, besides maybe the Mueller header, because. I just feel like people have been hard on her, like unnecessarily. And
2: thank God we finally decided to score a goal for ourselves.
3: That was the first goal we scored. As you reminded me, when I said our first goal versus Canada. that was an own goal. It doesn't count. This was our first goal. And then we ended up getting the second versus Rocio. So, yeah, I guess cause for celebration. So the ones yeah, everybody
2: I mean- predicted too, right? First goal <laughs> scorer, Muller, second goal
3: scorer, Rocio. <laughs> after the preseason though I wouldn't have been that surprised if Josio was true she was she was
2: all over the set pieces
3: but Muller would not have been the one I predicted mainly because I didn't think it would take us this long to score and I knew Muller wouldn't be an immediate starter so yeah I mean we started off pretty negatively I think got to air out a lot of our frustrations but ultimately I think room to have more positivity in terms of where we're going forward. Because again, as we talked about, we're, we're moving up from rock bottom and we're starting to see signs from players that should raise the ceiling of our offensive performances. Bigger yeah, test I mean, that-
2: on Wednesday, right? This team gave PSG a decent run for their money. And I mean, PSG isn't what they were last year, but they also won like six zero today and they have some pretty world-class attacking talent. So it's going to be, it's probably going to be one of our tougher games that we've had to play so far.
3: Breda Blick on October 13th, Wednesday, 3 p.m., and then October 17th on Sunday versus Sevilla. Time to be decided, and uh, Sevilla is never an easy team to play. And we, we, we found that out last season, and I'm sure it'll be similar this season. So the fixtures continue, and it's just it's not going to be an easy season. We've got to find a way to get victories, and we can say a win is a win. We need to learn how to win ugly. Fine, that's what we did versus A-Bar. But in order to consistently get the results we need from the position from the hole that we're in, it needs to go beyond, oh, we're just gonna scrape by like, we need to we need to find a system on the ball. We need to be able to control games at some level and be able to like play clearly better than than opponents who you know aren't parky essentially. Because it's fine to be like, oh, we win ugly. You know, once in a while. I mean, that's the reason people say it, right? Because you can't play well every single game. Oh, so it'd be cool gotta... to play well once. <laughs> It'll be you. It'll happen sometimes, and so you've got to find a way to win in those moments when you've been losing all the time, and then you like win ugly. It's like, well, okay, it's better than what happened before, but this can't, this this can't be the the limit to what we achieve. I, I don't think it necessarily will be. It's not like we won ugly every single game last season, even though we, we, we rarely felt like the tactics were perfect, but we still need to go way more, right? This isn't enough. And hopefully the team realizes that and, and, and just keeps that going. What I don't want, though, what I'm really scared of, another bad result comes, and that like plummets our confidence. Like As you said, Grant, we've got to find a way to manage these emotions better. You were more talking about game state, but I think that applies to the entire season. Yeah, absolutely i don't Absolutely. think we're gonna have like 10 wins in a row like i especially not with the injuries i just don't see that happening like we could easily draw the game versus Sevilla then what happens there and that's also why i think we need to really put the probabilities and like the future of a game in our hands more rather than being like let's shit house like no let's really go out there and deserve that wing because currently the probabilities are against us in terms of qualifying, qualifying for the Champions League or. They're very difficult, if not completely against us. And so, yeah, I mean, we really need to see a massive improvement for the team. We've taken some tiny steps forward, but we still have a lot to prove. And uh, let's see it versus the data blick on Wednesday. Grant, as always, man, it's been a pleasure. Alamadrid.
0: Uh, Madrid. All right, before we wrap it up, we wanted to give a quick shout out to all of our amazing patrons who do so much to support this show. Specific shout out to our $10 plus patrons because they get a specific shout out on the podcast. So, shout out to Brandon Alvarez, Willie Reed, Wade Perrin, Wamik Jamal, Umar Mahadi, Tyler Simon, uh, Tyler Dixon, Tobias Royal Botcher, Tahmid Kalam, Sujai Wani, Sumanchu Singh, Shivam Tiwari, Shabal Sharapov, Sergio Arispe, Santos Rosano, Said Mahad, Saad Omar, Rovi Takiev, Rishi D, Raul Gutierrez, Raga Potluri, Phoenix, Oscar Barrera, Nico Laxo, Nicolas Zapatero, Subillare, Nick Rivero, Muxi Thangal, Mowgli, MJ Diego, Marin Myrtle, Martin Ridman, Leon Stavronakis, Crystal Glass, Kevin Rivera, John Fernandez, Jeff Thurston, Jason Fitz, Graham Gerard, G- Gary Cohut, Frederick Antakiro, Frederick Sundros, Faisal Hamdan, S.A. Davisito, Eloy Enriquez, Edward Sossman, Daniel Williams, Christian Toft, Christian Acosta, Charles Williams, Brandon Powers, Brandon Stevens, Austin Fury Erdman, Anthony Lombardi, Alexis Saniseros, Al, Adam Dorsey, Fabian Moreno, thank you guys so much for your support. We love you all, we truly do. It's a pleasure meeting you guys all around the world when we get to your city. And without, well, no further ado. <laughs> My brain is fried. It's late here on Sunday night. So just wanted to say love you guys. Until next time, hanamari.